Good day, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, whatever time it is where you are, we welcome you to, I took a right turn. <laughs> we welcome you to, <laughs> ah, I took a right turn. Yeah. You know, we've written so many songs and I keep stumbling there because one of the things that we used to do is called playing in daddy's throne room and I always want to go there, but that's not where we are. No, we always want to play in Daddy's room. Well, we are playing in Daddy's room, but True. we're not calling it playing in Daddy's room. No. no, we're talking, we're calling it I Took, I took a, a Right, right turn. turn. So we welcome you. No Robert and Rosalie Owens welcome you to I, I took, took a, a right, right turn. turn. And no matter what time of day, and even though it might be fall back or spring forward, oh, yeah. time changes. Time is just a relative construct to our own minds. I mean, we could get off into a bunny trail about what is time. Yes. Whoa. But we won't. We won't. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to yeah. talk with you today a little bit about, um, uh, from the scripture Luke chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, which is really, um, I believe, a story of the blessings that come from obedience. And we're going to chit-chat about that for a little bit. Robert's going to read another chapter from the book. And before we get into all that, though, I just want to mention to you one more time, well, it won't be the last time I can tell you that, about uh, the foundation made kindly. What made kindly is, this is still cancer month, breast cancer month. And this is uh, a foundation that my sister formed to uh, honor our sister who passed with breast cancer because when she was going through the throes of treatments, uh, my sister would give to my passed away sister <laughs> these uh, cashmere little shawl things to cover her shoulders because you know it gets a little chilly and they're such a nice design because they don't get in the way of any of the uh, tubing or anything that needs to be used for treatment and they're very soft and cuddly and comfortable and gorgeous and so our foundation is not about giving money to cancer for research it's about putting something in the hands, something tangible in the hands of people going through treatment. So please check it out, madekindly.org. We can use your help in order to get these shawls in, onto the shoulders of many, many women. And every penny that goes to this foundation goes to the cause of purchasing and delivering uh, these shawls. There's nothing for salaries or Anything. It's all used right for that. Yes. And it's a, it's a worthy cause and just hope you will help support it. Amen. And now we're going to open up the Bible. First, we're going to go to a story that's too long to read. It's in Daniel. And it was oh, about King yes. Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. He was the guy who came and conquered Jerusalem and dragged all the Jews away in what they call the Babylonian captivity. And to him, I mean, he was the king of the whole world. As far as they knew that Babylonian civilization and all that, they were the big deal, right? And uh, his wise men came to him and said, Oh, God, king, you are so great. You're like God. You're the God. Mm -hmm. So he decided he's going to be God. So he had a great big, huge statue made of himself. 
and he said, everybody has to come. When we beat the drum and blow the horn, everybody's got to come and worship me as God. And so he's there with all his soldiers and everything else, and he figured out, well, if anybody's crazy enough to not worship me as God, well, I got a furnace over here. I'm going to throw him in a furnace. Mm -hmm. And so everybody came and worshiped him as God, and fi but finally three little Jewish boys show up who were brought there from the captivity. They were named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they said, we're not going to worship you. We worship the Lord God, and he's the God of all the world, and we're not worshiping anybody else. And Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. And he said, bow down and worship me. And they said, we're not going to do it. So he said, okay, tie him up and throw him in the furnace. Wait a minute. Heat the furnace up seven times. Make it even seven times hotter and throw him in there. So they tie him up, and they got the furnace so hot that the people who threw him in the furnace were burned by the fire coming out. Yeah. And they threw him in there, and the king's sitting on his throne, and he looks in, in the furnace. He says, wait a minute. What's going on, O king? He said, well, look in the furnace. Didn't we throw three people in there? And they said, yeah, we threw three people in there. And he looks again, he says, but I see four of them walking around in there, and one of them looks like the Son of God. Well, the strange thing is that but he saw them walking around. Walking around. In this extremely hot furnace. And they were tied up. Right. But they were walking, walking around, around in there like it was nothing. Right. So he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come on out. And they walked out of the furnace. And it says in the story, there wasn't even the smell of smoke on their clothes. They were completely unharmed. And now, here's what I'm thinking. If somebody told you, I'm going to throw you in the furnace, tie them up, and you get tied up, that'd be a good time to start losing hope. Or running. Or running. <laughs> it's hard to run when you're tied up and grabbed by all these oh, soldiers. that's true. <laughs> yeah, but okay. And then when they're about to throw you in, that'd be a good time to lose hope. They would say, no, 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 I'm ready to worship you. They didn't. They threw them in the fire. Man, you land inside the fire, that'd be a man, that'd be a temptation to lose hope. But they didn't lose hope. They stood in there on their faith and met God. And God was in there walking around like a son of God. We know who that is. Amen. And you know, this is a story about people not losing hope. Because so many times we can even feel like, well, the Lord told me that he's going to provide for me and my family by doing such and so. And you just keep doing such and so and such and so and such and so for year after year after year, and boy, it's not bringing any, any results at all. It's easy to feel like, man, it's time to give up hope. I'm going to stop. You know what? But it's like when you plant a plant and you put that seed in the ground and you sit there and you wait for it to come out, wait for it. Man, it's been three, four days. That thing hasn't come out yet. I better dig it up and see what's going on. You might dig it up just before it's about to break through the surface. You know, we just never know when the blessing of God is going to come upon us. Sure. And that brings us to our second story, the, the passage that Rosalie mentioned a minute ago in Luke. That first one was Daniel 3, 8 through 27 is the, is the story. This is in Luke. 
5, 3 through 11. And now Jesus is walking along by Galilee. And he's got a huge crowd around him. And he's standing there on the very edge of the sea. And he wants to talk to him, but he's getting pressed up into the sea. So he sees Peter and his brother, Simon, sitting, Simon and Andrew, sitting in a, in a boat. And he says, let me get in your boat. And he gets in their boat and says, take a little off from shore. And he goes out and then he preaches to him and he preaches a sermon. And then, you know, then he turns to Peter when he's done preaching. And he says, Peter, throw your net in the water. And Peter, who's a professional fisherman, you know, he says, well, Lord, you know, I mean, we've been fishing all night long. We just coming in. We fought fish all night long. We didn't catch a thing. And here's this carpenter, Jesus. Telling the fisherman, he says, yeah, but throw your net in one more time. And he throws his net in, and bam! It's so full of fish, they couldn't even pull it in. Another boat had to come alongside and help them pull it into the boat, and their boats were full of fish. And sinking. Sinking from the <laughs> weight of the fish. Yeah. And they get into shore, and Peter immediately falls at the feet of Jesus and says, oh, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Yes. I believe, I see, see what you're doing. And Jesus says right there, he says, follow me. And they did. And they did. They just left everything and followed him. You know, and here we are in our lives in this day and age. I mean, we're thousands of years away from that. Probably very few people who ever listen to this are professional fishermen. And if they are, they're probably working for Bass Pro or something. You know? <laughs> they're not out there with nets throwing them in the water. You know, but we do everything in our life. And even uh, here we are, we're believers. God tells us to do things. It's like we believe God told us to do this this podcast. We really believe it, that the two of us, he told both of us independently to do this. And we're doing it. And we don't know what, what the reason is. We don't know what the, the result will be. We don't know what harvest the seed will bring in. All we know is we have to plant the seed and be faithful. You know, and there are Obedient. many things. Obedience. Obedient to what the Lord says to do, no matter how crazy it may seem. And this is going to go off a little bit, but All right. I remember the one time that the Lord told us to walk around the house <laughs> three times and over to the neighbors. Yeah. Oh, he's told us to do some really crazy oh. things. Sometimes what yeah. we have done them, yeah. and they they have had great oh, results. Yeah. So oh, yeah. just you know, if you hear the Lord telling you something, do it. Oh yeah, oh, and He's yeah. not going to tell you to do something bad. Oh yeah, I can remember times the Lord is we're just going down the street, and the Lord tells us go knock on that door. Yeah, and we've knocked on that door. Go and give had, your keyboard oh, to that guy. Over your, there. Yeah, yeah, give your give your yeah, give your guitar to somebody you pick up hitchhiking, or your keyboard to somebody you know whatever. Uh, God tells you to do things, step out and do them. Amen. And believe that, that he will give you the increase. You know, so what we're talking about today is not losing hope, not, not stopping what God has called you to do, because we might be stopping right before the harvest. Right. Don't give up. Don't give up. So now what we're going to do is play a song for you. Called Don't Kill. <laughs> what, you know, what, what a coincidence. How did that happen? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But we pray you enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, we hope you do.
sing for you and your people. I don't care if it's in your living room. <laughs> it's like garage shock hops even. You know? <laughs> That's right, exactly. So uh, anyhow, you can contact us through the website. Uh, I took a right turn.com. <laughs> Just go to I took a right turn.com and there's a, a tab for contact and there's a form there and it also has other contact information. Right. You can also go there to find out how to purchase the books. Because, yes, no? You no. look at me funny. No, you can't. There's, no, there's, there's no nothing on there about how to purchase the books. <laughs> it's on another website. It's called <laughs> drrobertowens.com. You go there, it'll, there's a place to find out how to purchase it. Or you could just go to Amazon and put in the name of the book, America's Trojan War, and Dr. Robert Owens. Click on that, it'll bring it all up for you. Oh, I think I need to go back to, back to bed. Back to bed. Go get a new head, something. <laughs> okay, um, she's um, got it all written down, too. No, I don't. Oh, you don't. I need to. Okay. I will from now oh, on. Yeah. But thank you anyway. <laughs> We're listening to Danny. I mean, exactly. And believe okay. it or not, here's the funny thing. We're doing the best we can. <laughs> well, we mess up sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Because yeah. we're just showing that we're not AI chatbots. Oh. <laughs> In case you were wondering. Well, maybe they would program them to do crazy stuff like this so people would we think they're real human because beings. They're us. But we're real human beings, we promise. <laughs> Okay, well now this male human being is going to read a little bit for you from his book, America's Trojan War. Would you believe I've been taking brain pills? <laughs> Sometimes she forgets <laughs> to take the pills. pills. Or pills. Yeah, Whatever, we're doing good. Okay. Enjoy the book. <laughs> Chapter 19, The Raptors Come Home to Roost. Coming to a hovering stop about 20 miles from their objective, the Adventist Hospital, Colonel Stamper worked out the chain of command with the SEALs. All tactical units would retain their own command. Therefore, Commander Nelson having been killed, along with his entire command staff, it was agreed that Colonel Stamper would assume command of the entire attack force, taking a Marine Major, Jim Delkins, and a Navy First Lieutenant, Bob Nichols, on as part of his staff. Stamper requested and received the most up-to-date satellite pictures as well as everything the AWACS could provide. He shared all this electronically with each helicopter. On an encrypted channel, he addressed the hundreds of men ready to follow him into battle. Troops, we are facing a well-entrenched enemy who has superior numbers and superior firepower. As we say in Delta Force, and I'm sure you have something similar in the SEALs, the impossible may take a little longer, but we'll get her done. Booyah! Came a loud response from many of the Navy and Marine helicopters. Here's the plan. Our only hope is to get low enough so that their positions are between us and those 105s. Each of our Delta Chinooks has a Bradley. What about the Super Stallions? Ours are filled with war hammers, responded Lieutenant Nichols. Great! We can use those javelin missiles on the Abrams. We brought along a few M270 multiple launch rocket systems attached to our M993 carrier vehicles, added Major Delkins. All right, men, this is what we'll do. We'll maneuver in as low 
and as close as possible on the Chinooks and the Sea Stallions. The Apaches and Cobras will stay far enough out so they, they can use maneuver and countermeasures on anything those 105s throw at them. At D hour, the gunships will pop up and fire as many salvos into the perimeter as they can before the 105s start barking. Before the debris hits the ground, the Chinooks and Sea Stallions will jump over the intervening houses and land us right at the door we just blew open. From then on, we try to open as wide a breach as possible, kill as many terrorists as possible, and move in behind the perimeter. Our intel shows that there are small groups attacking the perimeter from all directions. Maybe they're police or just plain civilians with guns. Whoever they are, hopefully, they'll follow our lead and we can bring some numbers to bear. Any questions? Stamper concluded. What about the Abrams? Someone asked. The enemy has backed them right into the buildings. I guess they figured that would stop us from trying to take them out, so they have very limited to no maneuver capability. Once the dust settles, the Apaches and Cobras should jump back up and empty everything they have on the Abrams. Any other questions? Yeah, what are we waiting for? Let's kill these assholes, one of the men said, with his statement loudly echoed by many of the troops. All right, let's roll, Colonel Stamp Rick Stamper said, as his combined command of Delta Force and SEALs, the best America had to offer, braced for combat. These veterans of many engagements sat silently. Many were reflecting that after all those battles, they were about to engage for the first time inside the United States, and not in some far-off outpost in one of America's far-flung foreign operations. The gunships and the Chinooks went low and took their positions like raptors on a wire as they waited to swoop down upon their prey. All around the Adventist Hospital, scores of Americans, police, fire, and many others, armed with anything they could get, were shooting from cover and shells of what used to be solid middle-class homes. Hundreds were using the banks of Sligo Creek as a shooting position, and kept up a continuous hail of bullets into the fortified perimeter of the hospital. Another hot spot was coming from Palmer Lane, where people had built makeshift firing platforms inside the basements of destroyed homes. While all these patriots were able to let the invaders know there was resistance to be reckoned with, none of them could move forward in the face of the many Bradleys that lined the perimeter with their 25 millimeter guns firing 200 rounds per minute. Most of this ragtag bunch was running out of ammunition and hope when without warning, the entire corner of the perimeter at the junction of Sligo Creek Parkway and Carroll Avenue exploded in smoke and flame. Next, there came the roar of the tanks and the howitzers sending their massive shells screaming overhead. As the dust settled <clears throat> from the explosions on the perimeter, Giant helicopters seemed to jump up over the ruins on Palmer Lane and Jefferson Avenue to land in the green belt along the creek. Those who a moment ago were ready to retreat broke from cover and began running towards the gaping hole in the perimeter as they saw American troopers running out of the helicopters and into the fire from the hospital. As they all ran for the perimeter, they were outpaced by dozens of heavily armed Humvees some with 50 caliber machine guns muttered on top and all firing as they zoomed past. Colonel Stamper had ignored the advice of his staff to stay in a rear position 
to direct operation by saying the best place to direct a shock and awe engagement is at the tip of the spear. He was the first through the tangle of concrete and chain link that a moment before had been the defensive perimeter of Strike Force 2. Stamper was closely followed by Lieutenant Colonel Huffy Smith and the men of the combined Delta SEAL team. The special ops teams were shooting right and left, yanking open doors of Bradley's and killing the day's drivers. Jumping in, they opened the rear doors and soon they had an American team manning the M25mm gun and the machine guns. Instantly, they turned their fire during the, down the line, widening the perimeter breach and spreading death and confusion among the ISIS warriors unlucky enough to be in their vicinity. On the heels of the team, the civilians began flowing in, grabbing AR-15s and M-16s from the fallen ISIS warriors. They were soon providing a steady fire alongside the professionals as they beat the terrorists back in all directions. In the boardroom of the Adventist Hospital, Kuzim Nassan, the commander of Strike Force 2, was receiving a report from the runner from the commander of the perimeter. Sir, the unbelievers have broken through on the southwest corner. Send reinforcements and beat the back. Yes, sir, the messenger said as he turned on his heel to run back to his commander. But instead he was knocked down as the whole building swayed and ceiling tiles fell. Knowing that was not the sound of the field when his heavy guns fired, Kusam, holding onto a table to keep from going down, asked, What was that? Then it happened again. By the time the runners had alerted their commander of what was going on, a third volley of javelin missiles slammed into the building. Every Abrams on the south side and around the southwest corner had been taken out. The main building itself was on fire. The secondary explosions marked the places where the tanks were now burning wrecks. We still outnumber the unbelievers. Swamp them in numbers before they can get reinforcements, said Kozam, as he regained his feet and his composure. After the success of their initial surprise assault, the combined team and their civilian reinforcements were holding their own, but they were no longer advancing as more and more guards from the perimeter left their positions and ran to join the fight. Soon, more than a thousand were concentrating their fire as they brought up dozens of Bradleys to begin pouring lead into the tangle of destroyed vehicles that provided the only cover the Americans had. More and more ISIS warriors rushed to the southwest corner of the facility. Stamper, on the front lines, surrounded by his men, was in the process of being overwhelmed. Rick dropped a magazine from his M16 and reached for another. He was out. He dropped the rifle and pulled his sidearm. A 1911 Springfield 45 that had belonged to his father and his father's father. He emptied a magazine, dropped an Islamist with each shot. As he was ramming another magazine home, a terrorist jumped over the partial chassis of the dismembered Bradley he had been using as cover. He was knocked down by the weight of the man, his pistol flying out of his hand. He reached down and pulled out his 184 Buckmaster knife, which had also been his father's. Deftly rolling the terrorist off his back and under him, Rick plunged the knife into the side of his throat. As he was getting up, another warrior jumped him from behind. He was about to stab Rick in the back of his neck when a shot from Huffy Smith took him down. Rick regained his feet just in time for a bullet to ricochet off his helmet, sending him down again as two more warriors climbed over the ruined Bradley. His knife flew from his hand as he fell. As he crashed to the ground hard, 
His right hand landed on a discarded M16. He pulled himself up, fired, pitting both of the warriors. He could see all along the line that made up the furthest extent of their push into the hospital grounds. His troops were being overwhelmed by the masses of warriors pushing in from up and down the perimeter. He could see no way to rescue the situation when suddenly he heard the roar of gunships overhead and explosions started impacting the rear of the warriors. Warriors began to fall back in disarray as Rick and his team, followed by the civilian patriots, rushed forward yelling, USA! USA! Behind Colonel Stamper and his force of special ops troops swarmed hundreds of enraged citizens who had seen what was going on from their hiding places in the rubble. They came armed with anything they could lay their hands on. Shotguns, hunting rifles, pistols, axes, hatchets, and some even with pitchforks and shovels. Once they were on the hospital grounds, they picked up discarded AR-15s and M-16s as they stripped the bodies of the fallen warriors, taking knives, pistols, and hand grenades. They pushed forward, following America's finest, into the breach as they all slogged their way through the gaping opening made in the perimeter of the Adventist Hospital. Then, following the gunships, they swept around the facility. They overrun the terrorists. Within a few hours, Colonel Rick Stamper, the Special Ops Combined Force, and the hundreds of civilians and police who had joined them were in possession of the entire perimeter. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us this day, and I'm not going to get crazy. She's going to be straight. I'm going to be straight. That's what I told Robert. I'm not going to get crazy with it. Anyway, we love you all. We hope you enjoyed the show, the song, the book. Look forward to, oh, look forward to seeing you next time. No, I don't want to see you. I'm right? not going to see you, but, and you won't see me. <laughs> <laughs> but you might, hopefully you'll hear us next time. I better go take my break. <laughs> God bless you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.